0: Welcome to Stop, Hack, and Roll, a podcast about putting on a bathrobe, calling up your friend John, and frying some fresh genre bacon.
1: I'm Brandon. And I'm John. I'm a biped. I sit in this chair.
2: I'm wearing a bathrobe. And I'm James. Today we're going to be talking about Noir World, writing with an agenda in mind, and mechanizing genre.
0: All right, we've got a very special episode today uh, because we have our dear friend and one of my gaming mentors, John Adamus. Hi, everybody. John is a just ridiculously prolific editor and has done enormous amounts of work in the RPG field and has really pushed a ton of project forwards in major, huge ways. But if I'm being honest, the thing that I find most exciting with John is his phenomenal project noir world which uh today uh if you're listening to this on release day i think it's the 21st yeah which i think means the kickstarter
1: is live in theory yes it will be live at the 21st
0: if that is indeed the case i will already have backed at the book level
1: yes yeah because
0: i am so excited for this game
1: and by backing right away, you'll get access to the quick start guide, which gives you the six base Ooh. characters and all the charts and stuff you need to immediately grab friends and start playing. Which we will probably do.
2: Which we'll
0: probably do. Everything else else is going to go on hold. Uh, Noir World is, I've talked about it on a bunch of other podcasts, on a bunch of other episodes. So it is. this is not like some new thing where because we're talking to John, I'm talking about how awesome Noir World is. And World is one of my very favorite games.
2: For a while, I've wanted to come back and do another episode following up on our genre bake-in episode, which was episode five, and so very long ago. And because in that episode, we talked about games having a, a different levels of genre baked into them and and why you would want to hack one kind of game versus the other. And we hadn't... And so we didn't really talk when we were in that episode we didn't talk about how you would go about putting a genre into your game and just whether what kind of game you would want to hack from. And so coming back around to that topic, um, obviously we wanted to talk about a game like Nora World, which has a lot of genre baked into it. And so as we do sometimes we bring on experts into the show to talk with us about the things that they do and in this case we've found john and we've been meaning to talk to him for a while so here we are i keep looking around waiting for the expert to show up <laughs>
1: cuz i'm i'm just me and i right. i don't feel i don't feel like an expert i'm just a guy who watched a lot of movies And took a lot of notes, and then figured out how to use Excel to make a spreadsheet.
2: I think that's the definition of an expert, though.
1: Oh, all right. Well, good then. Great.
0: Cool. (laughs) Yeah, I've got some bad news for you, John. Turns out you are (laughs) an expert in this field now. Oh. And so you might be called in to give testimony and things like that. I
1: will go in a bathrobe and slippers. Let's do this.
0: Yes, and, and as we had discussed previously to this episode on Twitter, if anyone was watching that, um... At least two out of three of us are in bathrobes right now.
2: Yes, I am too, yeah. So all three of us. Fantastic. This is a
0: very special genre bacon and bathrobes episode.
2: Great title. Great title. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll upvote.
0: <laughs> Perfect. So, John, uh, would you tell us a little bit about Noir World?
1: Sure. Well, I just wrote the Kickstarter text today, so here, I'll give you the little blurb. Noir World is film noir powered by the apocalypse. It is the chance for you and several of your friends to get together using uh, film noir tropes as well as storytelling techniques that you have gleaned by watching television to tell a collaborative, ruinous, tragic, and enjoyable experience. Um Film noir is at the heart of it, but it can also extend to hard-boiled fiction, heist fiction, neo-noir, general robbery stories, and good old-fashioned tragedies. It is um, probably one of the things I'm proudest of making. It encompasses just a wealth of film noir in terms of trope and genre and mechanics, and um, it's a lot of fun, and I'm really glad people like it. The, um, because film noir for me is defined as um, people living and dealing with the terrible consequences of emotional choices, the, the game is predicated on the idea of setting up relationships between uh, not just the, the, the players, not just the characters, the roles involved, but also the city and the world that the story takes place in. Because everything ultimately should lead to really tough, uncomfortable choices. That's, that's the heart of the game. And then from there, fun evolves.
2: Yeah. Um, So I think that's actually probably a really good place to start our conversation, um, which is, you talked about the definition of noir as a genre. Right. And so if you are a person approaching, creating a game, and you want to bake a ton of genre into that game, how do you go about Boiling down that genre, like because noir can kind of expand and and com- and encompass a lot of stuff, right? But that's a very specific definition. So, how did you like? How did you reach that definition?
1: I got there by watching a ton of material, a ton of source material, three hundred plus films, uh, a lot of books, a lot of Kindle stuff, a lot of you know, Googling and and time spent just finding as much as I could, and it came down to trying to make a uh A definition that was targeted enough that I could say it in one sentence, but also use it to sort of always come back to when I got lost. It became my compass. It became my little, like, center point. Everything comes back to the emotional choices. Everything comes back to terrible consequences. Because without that sort of foundation, all you're really doing is just adding layers on top rather than layers within. Because the more we talk about, let's say, we, let's look outside film noir. If we were looking at cyberpunk, for instance, yep. then the more layers we put in about trench coats and leather and laser pistols, and if we're going shadow run, <laughs> then we're talking trolls and dragons and corporations mm-hmm. and this and that. Those are those are all exterior layers because you can strip them down because cyberpunk isn't about, well, I'm a troll wearing sunglasses at night like Corey Hart It's instead about fighting against a corporate dystopia that is intent on fracturing society into a way where it can create control. So you've got to be able to understand the genre in such a way as to say, this is the vector. This is the way I want to face it. This is the direction I want to go. This is what I want to do. And from that, you sort of make this little nest. You build this little egg. Everything I'm going to do has to be either you know for noir for me either a terrible consequence or an emotional decision everything and then mm-hmm. you only filter in what supports that conclusion and you only you only exclude the stuff that really doesn't appeal to you the really easy one for me for noir is i i want nothing to do with the sexism the racism the homophobia any of the bigotry stuff i want nothing to do with it so so we recognize that it's there but we we don't like, there's no chapter on, here's how you be a bigot. So, like, <laughs> yeah. we, we skip that, and we focus instead on, okay, here's your character, this is the vibe of your character, these are the emotional choices you get to pick from, there's a whole page, go. And by making a conscious decision as to what to include and exclude, you're sort of steering the the player, the reader, the GM, whomever they might be, through the experience in a very particular way so that you are able to give them a crash course in the thing, in the genre, without making them have to sit down and watch 303 films. Uh-huh. You're giving them the highlight reel by packaging it in a particular direction.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You've got the games that have vague trappings of stuff, like, I'm going to throw a little bit of shade here, a really old Shadowrun Mm. uh, that is cyberpunk because they told you that you're wearing leather and you have a thing that goes over your eye. But that doesn't actually make it so. Whereas I think Noir World really, I think it captures both the themes and feelings of noir and also just shows in some of the things, some of the item options and things like that. But in any case, Noir World really captures not only the feeling of noir, but also the trappings that make it accessible and remind you how to do the things that you need to have. But those trappings are easy to take out, whereas the deeper themes within film noir as a whole are maintained by the mechanics.
1: Well, yeah. every every element, whether it's mechanical, whether it's, you know, I'm going to give you, you know, you get the chance to carry a flashlight Every element is an opportunity to either reinforce the theme you've already got or add to it, yeah you know so when you give the p i the the forever billowing trench coat you are you are making a very clear statement as to this is this is a vibe this is an atmosphere i want uh p s all trench coats in noir world billow as well they should absolutely so um, since everything becomes an opportunity to reinforce, a uh, some element of genre that you approve of, that you validate and say, yes, this is part of my experience because there are other noir games out there that don't do what I do. And that is completely, yeah. totally super fine. It's just that when I, 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 I own them and I looked at it and I said, Oh, these are great games. I, I love these games, but they don't do what I wanted to do. They, they're on the edge over here. They're a little bit here, they're a little bit there. I want to take it in this one direction because I, as much as I love you know using string or um, rolling one die and consulting some some PDFs, I I really want to do with characters, and I had very clear um, play decisions I had made outside of the genre, and um, they both sort of helped inform each other. The, right. Um, because then we got into the mechanics of it. Then it was, well, I want this thing to happen, I want this experience to happen at the table. I want players to act in, and behave in a certain way. That's not a genre thing, because there are that's just not how the genre works, but it's a play thing. So it became about making the distinction between what element on the page, what element in the rules, what element on the character sheet reinforces the atmosphere, the the, the genre of film noir, and what element reinforces the play that I want to see at the table and sort of learning to marry those two is what really necessitated there being 70 plus
2: draft (laughs) Yeah, your editing process sounds nuts it's a
1: little obsessive but it absolutely guarantees that I stand by every word on the page you and I might never agree as to why I wrote the paragraph the way I wrote it it may not be the greatest any award winning thing ever but it's a game I believe in it's also
0: just a ridiculously dense game in terms of page count and uh, not in terms of like fluffy page count but in terms of words chosen carefully to have exactly what it's meant to have and it goes beyond what a bunch of other apocalypse world games do in that it has what 20 base playbooks
1: yes there are 20 base playbooks the stretch goals add uh let's see 11 more 12 more um, but yes, you start out with a base twenty possible characters. In order for in order to qualify as a role in the game, it had to be distinct in significant ways from the other roles that are already there. And it it became sort of fun to sit down and watch more source material and go, okay, are there any new kinds of characters here? Oh, there are. Great, let's watch this movie four times with a notepad and see, okay, so here's the attorney. Uh, Attorneys in film noir show up in about 13 films that I watched and they're all, um, they run the gamut from like the mid forties all the way up through like modern. And they're all played different ways by all different kinds of actors. So it was about figuring out how, like what can I construct in the role mechanically to do what I want And it suddenly became... The reason it's dense is because every element of it had to be sort of cross-checked with the stuff I already had. Yeah. The two great mechanical and play issues I faced were an issue about reactivity and an Mm -hmm. issue of player boredom. Um, Okay. Reactivity, in a a nutshell, is the idea that... um, when most people get together for a game, let's say they get together for D&D or anything where there's a GM, right? They, right. We always station the GM usually at one end of the table, um, whether that's noon or six o'clock on the clock face, depending. In In my gaming group, it's at nine o'clock because of where, how the table is situated in the room. But we give them like a third to a quarter of the table. And then everybody sort of orients around them and no matter the game we're playing the idea is that you have um sort of a wait and see attitude you know it's well the the troll does this what do you do and from what i do through resolving what i do that's the only agency i have i right, i don't yeah. it's oh well i i guess i fight him with my sword and that's great, and yes, there are games that take that a step further and allow you to be narratively interesting about how you fight him with the sword, but ultimately your range of agency is limited based on whatever your GM has planned. And few things are as frustrating as, you know, the GM lays out these elaborate plans, you know, he does it on his lunch break at his day job or whatever, and he, he's, it's, 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 it's game time, it's ready to go, and the players decide to make a hard left turn, like, two minutes into play. So that there's no, and then, the, you know, you, you get the option of like, well, do I just chuck these notes over my shoulder and wing it? Or do I railroad them? And if I railroad them, are they going to complain? And you're always, uh, with a GM, you're always waiting for the GM to go first. The world yeah. does this, the players react. And um, with a big group, like I have eight people in one of my regular groups. And for some games, I, I'm sitting and waiting for 15, 20 minutes. That's. I mean, it's not bad. Like, there's snacks. I can play with the cat. <laughs> I can do stuff. But ultimately, like, that's. I'm only there four hours, with yeah. with eight people. How many times do I really get to do something? I mean, yes, I'll make my friends laugh, but at the same time, like, am I really engaged in play? So I wanted yeah. to resolve that issue, but also, um. When, I, when it was my turn to GM different things, I noticed that I got really very accustomed to the top of my players' heads rather than their faces, <laughs> because they're forever scanning a character sheet, or they're forever doodling in the margins, or they're forever reading the rules-to-rules lawyer me, and um, I, I adore my friends. They're marvelous people, but I don't hang out with them because they have
2: great scalps. My but friends they- do have excellent scalps, actually.
1: You know, I think it's all about having the right water and shampoo combination.
2: Uh, one of the things that is that is great about so because I've seen some bits and pieces of of Noir World from time to time, and and sort of knowing that you had started with that that genre description uh, it is just it is it is probably it, it is astounding how much of every little piece of the game, every piece of every mechanic, really like reinforces that and that certainly must have been infuriating to write and I imagine that's where a lot of the edits and rewrites came from yeah making sure it it was
1: it was okay I've made this rule does this rule um, there were any anytime there's a rule there were always three questions I asked Uh, does this actually do what I want it to do like does the math not so much does the math always work out but is there enough like when we roll the dice, is it interesting? You know, does, the, right. does it make sense that, yes, you would roll randomly at this moment? Um, does it reinforce the elements of ideal play? When everything's going great and I want you to really feel tension in that scene where you have to finally pull the gun and shoot the person, does this add to that tension? Does it add a narrative thing? And third, would it be legitimately, would you be able to do it if you were sitting around with your friends? and does it make sense on the page how i wrote it cuz in my head it always makes sense cuz i'm the creator so of course i understand you know like my shorthand is just r plus whenever i had to like handwrite a note oh roll r plus but if if you had if you're reading my chicken scratch legal pad for you know the <laughs> chapter on gm directing there's like i don't know 22 lines cuz it's all shorthand so i had to make sure the words completely expressed the idea and Um, Then it was about reinforcing the idea and then it was about making sure as a final sort of polish coat, making sure that the rule wasn't uh, so constrictive that it would only come up in certain cases. Because a rule that only serves the, you know, 10% of the time this happens is a rule that you could probably hand wave to better results. Because if it only happens one out of every 10 times... And there's a million, let's say there's a thousand different things going on. It's probably unlikely that you're going to have to dust off that thing consistently. So why not hand wave it? And it was about choosing, well, what do I want to hand wave versus what do I want to hard mechanize? Meaning there's no flexibility. There's no dice rolling. It's just the, it's just the way it is. Versus what do I want to inject the possibility of change and player oriented change? They roll the dice. They read the result. They have to, it, it, they make the decision. Rather than, well, the book says, you just do it this way. And sort of balancing that pyramid was a great source of anxiety, as well as excitement during playtest when all of a sudden, you know, oh, man, this really works. This is great. Now I just need to duplicate this 18 more times in 18 different ways. Um, Yeah. And it actually got easier. Um, because like in the middle, if if you, if you look at the giant list of playbooks, uh, I hit a stride where I did about six in a day because I unlocked the fundamental necessity of playbooks. Like I understand roles. I know what you need to get on a sheet because I right. want you to play. I, I, I'm going to, let's see if I can get this to make sense. I want you to play
2: a certain way,
1: but that certain way is entirely up to you.
2: Yeah. That's the that's the difficulty of baking genre into games. Yes.
1: I'm I'm going to I am going to, you know, we can say, oh well, here's a whole big giant field like it's it's snowing. There's been a blizzard here. So, oh, here's a, you know, here's a giant big field of snow. You can play in it however you want, but you must play in the snow. And exactly. to to organize that in enough distinct ways really required me to compartmentalize a lot of different things and then start to integrate them. And when you look at when the, the as I grew the number of roles, the amount of interaction and cohesion between the roles got smaller because there were more roles taking up more spaces to plug and play. And once I figured out like, well, well the, the role is just an informational guide. It, it's It's not a map, it's a series of suggestions the ability to choose, the ability to develop is entirely left to you. You know, pick a name, pick this, pick that. Here's a list, here are our options. If the options suck, the player's going to pick their own thing no matter what. So, right. wh- why not just let them pick what they want from the jump? Trust them that if you supply enough genre and enough material, you won't face uh, what, what's called negative decision paralysis, which is, I don't know what to do. There's too much data on this sheet. I'm looking at you, Rollmaster, um, <laughs> Master, um, Hack Master, anything with a spreadsheet. Um, anything like that where you don't know where to direct your eye. You don't know where to start. It might be numbered, but it still seems like there's just so much. And one of my problems I had in my home game before I even started writing this was we would play on a weekly basis, but I would still have players ask me, where do I find that on my character sheet? What am I rolling? What am I doing? And, like, I understand they have lives and, and brain power and, and so many things in the world. But at the same time, like, the organization of material matters. Where it falls on the sheet matters. So Noir World is built very linearly. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. You, pro- you you progress your way all the way through, and every element, you everything you succeed at, adds to and reinforces like, oh yeah, I'm doing really good. And as you get through the sheet, it gets harder to do because I wanted to create what's called positive decision paralysis, which is where you get to say the last page of the characters, which is the hook system, and go, there are so many good things here, I don't know what to choose. I prefer are- that. Yeah, there are a
0: couple of things in that process that just that pushed Pasión de las Pasiones in just major ways. Um, the list of items that you provide for each uh, playbook is—it just blew my mind open when I saw it. Specifically, with the Good Cop, a pile of bills you need to pay. Yes. When I saw that, it. Fundamentally changed the way that I was thinking about putting together a playbook or a character sheet or a character. Yeah. So that's terrible. It's terrible to have that, <laughs> and that defined like, when I made that that one decision that I made for that character at Metatopia 2015. Right. Defined that character.
1: Yes. In an enormous way. Right. So there's there, if you look at non PBTA games, if you look at just trad gaming, right. Yeah, Your inventory is, is always assumed to be positive. I have these things, so I'm going to use them, and they are to my benefit. I have healing potions, I have spell components, I have arrows, I have bullets, I have these tools with no negative consequence to me. You know, I'm not going to shoot myself in the foot. I'm going to shoot the bad guy.
2: And also, they're they're dead ends. When you yes. choose a sword in D anD D, it doesn't matter if it's got a brown leather handle or if it's got a like a a silver engraving. Right. But like, what what a pile of bills is 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 that a perfect level of? It's very specific, but it's also incredibly broad. Well, it's because it's got potential,
1: and um, potential is the key for building genre in equipment. Yeah. yeah. Because. You need to, like, it's not enough just to have a thing. Like, I have a jar of pens in front of me, and I can say, I have a jar (laughs) of pens. Great. And you could ask the question, well, where did you get the pens? What are the pens doing? But the more important question is, "What what will I use the pens for? Yeah. So when you create this notion on the good cop that you have a pile of bills, yes, you will get people who are not, who are used to having less freedom to say, well, where did I get these bills from? What do I do? Versus seeing it as the potential of something I possess to be negative towards me becomes motivation for me to do something about it. The only time that really comes up in D&D is with a curse. Because all of yeah. a sudden, oh, I have to do something. My character is rotting away and, and bits are falling off. But again, that reinforces the reactive idea because that curse had to come from somewhere. These bills you possess, you generated the things that caused these bills. We don't have to see that. We just have to see the consequence.
0: Right. And all I had to do with those bills was bring them up in a little, I think I brought them up in a little monologue scene where I was looking at the bills, yeah, putting them back on the table and having a sip of coffee. Right. And then I want to say four out of the six scenes I was in after that involved those bills without
1: seeing the bills at any point. Right. Exactly. It it Because it's about the implant, it's about the... the implanting of ideas not only for you but for other people so that that it's available and that level of availability was one of the first things where i realized that um noir world has to have a shared gm yeah because if we're like that that's a big selling point the it not only does it get me away from the idea of john takes actions and then you guys react it also fundamentally leads me towards the idea that we are all sharing all tools for good or ill equally. And so long as I can codify that, you know, you can't be a dick to the person on your left (laughs) and you can't effectively ruin the time for everybody else. And we all get on board with that around page, I think, four of the manuscript where it's, you guys got to be cool to each other, right? You know, like we're all in this together. We're going to have a good time, not a bad time. And once we get on board with that, then even the worst choices in relationships, even the worst choices in hooks can still be built in a way that's enjoyable. Even though finding out that you're waiting for your sister to marry you, even though you don't know she's your sister, but she does, um, that becomes way more interesting.
0: This is something I've been struggling with Really hard with Pasión de las Pasiones is I'd initially started it out as GMless, mm-hmm. and I tested it out GMless with two groups of people and have now tested it uh, with a GM for three groups and I can't decide which I like more. All right, but so it's, it's the way you structure the GMless is so is so good. I need to I have I don't have structure. I think a lot of times people. <laughs> take out the GM and then don't add a structure to help back that up
1: well there has to be a structure like without structure the game crawls and the game falls apart because the GM isn't just the authority on rules the GM is also a set of greater actions and omniscience than the players have because the GM traditionally controls the environment and the greater world and the bad guys and all the things that the players aren't or don't have access to so you've got to be able in a GM list game to create an industry around
2: those elements
1: because they still have to happen. Like you still have to address your bad guy
2: somehow. Yeah. Oh yeah. What, what the GM list, the way the GM works in noir world did for me specifically was it told me two things are true. First, the the sort of the core interaction is a lot of times going to be between players because there isn't like it's not us all taking turns interacting with an npc run by the one gm at the end of the table we're all interacting with each other which is also reinforced by the hook system but it also the thing that it does that i love is it it takes those where you have those moments where you're sitting around a table and someone makes a joke about how oh, this would be a great place to have a montage, or this is like someone yells, end scene, or we fade out or something like that. And it sort of codifies those those sort of intuitive motions of filmmaking that at least a lot of people I know do uh, at the table and turns them into an actual mechanic. Yes. Uh,
1: Mechanizing that not only makes my mom proud because I finally get to use my degree, but it also (laughs) helps give a structure where a GM would normally give the structure. Like a GM will say, okay, and then move forward. And by giving players the um, kind of soft boundary that they can uh, determine when a scene is over on their own, but also giving them a hard cap, you get to do two automatic things. You get to set up a scene and close a scene. But in between that, you get up to three other things you get to do and then play passes to the right. Um, By structuring it that way... um, You know that even if you're not a very confident GM, even if you've never done it before, all you really have to do is say, okay, I think in this scene we're doing X, these people are involved, okay, I think there's one more thing I want to do, I think you just need to talk about this, here's your motivation, and done, and then you pass, so that you're never really sitting in the hot seat position too long. And I have had quite a few tables of people tell me, well, I've never GM before, or I've only GM'd once, and they they start playing and they start getting into it, and as so long as they don't go first, and as you know, they let other people around the table sort of build the atmosphere, and then they join in. It's far more comfortable for them. Um, and I've had people who are very regimented, very like I'm a Pathfinder GM, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this, and it's very blocky, and it's very you know like methodical in terms of when these things get deployed, and they uh two things happen either they struggle hard because right. um you have to there there's some element of I need to think on my feet and not think in a scripted structured way but also an element of um oh like I I can I want to do this thing can I do it yeah yeah you you can this isn't pathfinder you don't have to mirror the gm experience that you're used to if you have an idea in your head the the structure of this rewards the ooh moment. Ooh, I have a good idea. Let's do this. Um, because when you can get to that level of creativity, you are automatically going to encourage, without even really trying, all the other people to join in too.
2: That is ex- exactly the a, a perfect example of mechanics not getting in the way of storytelling right. that I talk about all the time, Brandon. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. Mechanics must
1: underline must like four times must serve the story you want to tell period yeah if
2: absolutely. a mechanic
1: is there um just to sort of be there either the players will uh, engage with it and it will ruin the narrative structure or the players will find ways to never do it um i'm trying to think of an example oh here's an example Let's suppose you're playing a particular game that involves uh, jewelry that goes on fingers, and there's five of them, and uh, you're telling some kind of great samurai tale. Well, let's. Okay, that doesn't sound like a game. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Let's just pretend. Let's pretend. We'll pretend it's a game. Now, let's suppose that in this particular game of samurai, there is a a very complicated uh, honor system because you want to steep and hard code this idea that you have to act a certain way. Right. that's important and that's that's the vibe and the thing. But the problem is that those mechanics become so entrenched and they are so delineated. They stake up so much real estate on the page that they become the dominant thing the player does. Oh, I'm a particular type of samurai. I have to act in a certain way regardless of what the narrative is. And the minute you bring mm. that overly concrete material to a player who's like, dude, I'm not doing this to the same degree you are. You might want to back up off me. Um, you suddenly run into this part where the mechanics get in the way of the story because all of a sudden it's, no, I have to act a certain way. But but the story's going in this other direction. We, we've taken a left turn at Albuquerque. Why why don't you chill and have a cookie? The, <laughs> the important thing being that if the story comes first because we're all here to have a good time and we're going to have a good time if we tell a good story, then the mechanics either have to help me do that or... Or work in a way to make that possible. Or get the hell out of the way. Mechanics, just to have mechanics on the page to say, well, I've designed a thing. I'm going to push up my glasses and adjust my pocket protector and my square. And then maybe I'll get out of mom's basement. That's great. And I'm really proud of people who have developed these overly Swiss Army knife. My game does everything mechanically. Great. Do people enjoy the stories you tell? Can we put a premium on story now? Like, great, you've made rules where I roll 45 dice. Awesome. What kind of story are we telling? How often am I going to pick up these dice? Because, like, that's heavy. Let's do something. Let's act. And when you put storytelling or the want of a good story at the heart of things and you t- you let people tell a story with the tools they already understand, like, I need a montage. I need a scene that's a flashback. I need to adjust time. I need to make these two people talk. They know how to do that. We all watch TV. When you're able to streamline the rules in their presentation without having to, you know, come up with extra funky language or extra sidebars, you create the idea that, oh, this is doable. I can do this. I've never done this before, but this seems addressable. This seems manageable. And then all of a sudden you say, ah, well, you're GMing. Ta-da! And... (laughs) It not only gives them a chance of "I have GM'd a game, I am awesome," but it's also that really wasn't so difficult. Let's do it again. Absolutely,
0: which helps to build people into people that are running games, and it
1: gets people to write games, and it builds the hobby in a major way. Absolutely, that was that was the super super unintended consequence of doing this. <laughs> I just wanted but to it... make a thing that were that where people got to have these really messed up relationships. And then got to, you know, get to a part of the sheet where it's just like, oh, God, this is going to be awful when this happens. And then, oh, by the way, everybody loved it. Like, that was, you know, yes, I wrote this game to seek validation. I've talked about that on other podcasts. Yes, I wrote this game so that my friends would like me. Yes, I wrote this game so that I could feel like I could still sit at the cool kids table. But uh, at some point, I reached that tipping end where it was just, you know, I'm going to assume I'm going to screw this all up anyway. So I'm just going to have a good time going out the door. And it became a lot more freeing. And the genre became far more important than the thing the genre was trying to do, which was impress people. And I got to share what I love about the genre and exclude the stuff I didn't. Without having to make these, like, undue economies and balance all these things and have you break out, like, two charts and a note card. It was just, nope, here we go. This is what we're doing. It can be simple, and you can still have a really good time, because it can be complex in its simplicity. Yeah, what's kind of cool in this
0: is that as you describe the sort of new method of looking at your writing and looking at writing this game, you've essentially described creating an agenda ahead of time. Yes. And that is kind of core of the Apocalypse World or PBTA mindset of having an agenda in mind ahead of time as you bring out this story so you had not only an agenda for the game that you presumably wrote but also an agenda for how you were going to create those materials
1: right and i mean i never called it my agenda until maybe like draft 60 where all of a sudden people were like what are you doing oh well i'm i'm putting the polish on this thing but um All I wanted to do at every paragraph and every word and every sentence and every sidebar and every mechanic was say, this is the atmosphere I want to build. This is the relationship I want players to have. These are the freedoms I want to empower them to use. These are the opportunities I want them not even to think about. And then I want them to have a good time. So that it it never got preachy. It never became a, a battlefield. It was never about like, you know, disagreeing over how somebody interprets something to be possibly problematic. It mm-hmm. it became instead just, yeah, we're going to have a good time because we're going to read it just as it is. And we're not going to read into it and we're not going to project too deeply into it because honestly, that says more about you than the book. And then we're just going to have a good time. When in doubt, have a good time was the, <laughs> um, well, for a long time that was in the book. Like that was a sentence like on page two or three. In big giant letters.
2: Oh, when in doubt, good. have a good
1: time. Um, it later, you know, sort of mutated into the jam, the, into the director section, where I start talking about how, like, if if they throw a wrench in all this stuff, just roll with it. The rules will handle it. It'll be fine. But um, it became paramount to me that this not be um, a hypercritical, inflexible examination, and instead became a jumping off point for people to let themselves be creative in a particular way.
0: And I think it I think it hits that like even without without having a GM the drama unfolds quickly or with having I guess as many GMs as there are players. Right. The drama unfolds in this really nicely tightly put together way from what I've seen of it.
1: And I intend to see much more of it. It it wasn't always that way. Like, I have horror stories where um, at one point, I in, early on in the process, I didn't cap the number of locations. Okay. So the stories just became these big sprawling messes. And okay. I didn't cap the – I didn't organize how to do the hooks well enough. So there weren't enough uh, – there were either too many tangled relationships that no one could remember. Or there weren't enough, and somebody always felt like the short end of the stick. To, um, and figuring out like what the sweet spot mechanically, like how many hooks do I give? Um, I I will admit a trade secret that I pulled the number out of thin air. (laughs) Um, I thought, because initially it was four hooks a player. And so really that's eight things. That's eight. it's it's, It's four from you and four to you. And if you have six people, because at one point this game had ten players. Yes. And uh, at one point it had eight players, and I sort of filed it down because the the more tables I would test this with, the bigger they were, A, the less fun collectively everyone was having, and B, the, the more unwieldy it became in its time slot. Okay, yeah, so, I can see that. Because it was just too many people waiting, too many people having to do a thing. The story never really congealed because it's just too many people trying to do too much and uh, trying to make too many stars rather than a collaborative effort. Because I have to stand out because I'm player number nine at the end of this table. So the um, the decisions came quickly. Well, how many players am I actually comfortable with You know, sitting around this table? Max six. Because... Uh, it is the smallest number of conceivable triangle points between connect all these people up and how many hooks do I want them to give the, the nice thing was when I first started testing them out, I did such a shit ass job of explaining them, um, that no one understood and nobody got it right for the first, like two months. (laughs) So, um, I would have to walk people through and that example that I always use is in the book. Like, You read one thing off your sheet, they read one thing off their sheet, it sort of meets in the middle and that's your relationship. And that's your hook because it started with you. And then you do that same thing again with a different person. It never occurred to me until way later in the creative process that I could just write it down just like that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because it's okay to have things in English. It's okay to have things be in a reasonable, casual tone that is not threatening, that is not pejorative, that is not dry, that is not overly technical. You and you figure that, you know, it's, it was, you know, pick this, pick this, mash it together. The... Um, when there were too many of them, we spent far too long doing that and not enough time seeing how they would play out. Now, I love the hook system. I think it is the crown jewel of this game. And um, despite there being a rather robust plot system, if you need to develop your own plot, like who's going to get kidnapped, what's going to get blown up, who's dead, what's a fake, etc., um you can tell an entire story based on just the hooks you pick and how characters interact. And um initially that really bugged me that no one was going after the crime because there's a I wrote a great crime <laughs> chart. I wrote a great <laughs> breakdown of 36 base crimes in in film noir. And right the the tables that took that really seriously were less fun because they focused too much on solving the plot. And figuring out who done it, and invariably they never let themselves do it. They always had to have an NPC do it because that sort of harkens back to that GM creating these characters and the player sort of having semi agency as opposed to full agency. And when I started saying, you know, maybe one of you did it and go, it it freed up the opportunity for the crime to be this incidental part of the role. it's just another relationship. Except instead of being this familial or emotional relationship, it's a narrative story relationship. You did this thing. Okay. Maybe that explains why you have the relationship with this person that you do.
0: John, you're continuing to just blow
1: my mind with this. (laughs) You're you're pushing me into rewrites. In order for me to believe in every word on the page, I had to make sure I know why those words were on the page. And I had to know what those words represent. Which led me to question why we do just about everything in gaming. Why do we roll these dice? Why do we why do we use this terminology? Why do we have this terminology? Why do we always follow this action with this action? And the answer often comes down to a guy, you know, 40 years ago made these choices, or 50 years ago made these choices. <laughs> no one ever questioned it, so uh-huh. it just sort of stuck around. And when I started to realize that everything in narrative, whether it's a film, whether it's radio, whether it's a game, whether whatever, is a relationship, those relationships became very modular because to figure out the crime, everybody rolls a d6 and you look at the chart, and then everybody rolls a second d6 and looks at the chart, and there's the crime. So you might get something as you know, different as uh, a kidnapping is arranged to um, a church is burned down, and right. that variability I'm totally willing to have, but it started a, a sort of a modular domino trail well if i'm willing to let this fly, if i'm willing to let this be questionable and open ended what else can i do so mm-hmm. let's start moving time periods because noir exists in just about every decade so that opened up the scale from 1900 to the near future because all <laughs> of a sudden the the time became this this one more level of surface that I could play with. People still have terrible relationships. It just happens that it's now 1940 instead of 1930. And what really has changed? The clothes and some of the cars. Or we're in the near future. Okay, there's going to be lasers and iPhones. The that's just surface stuff. That doesn't. That's not going to change the fact that you feel guilty that you left this person at the altar, or that uh, today's the day this guy decides you no longer should be. You know, you're not going to live so these those emotional choices outweigh the practicalities of time period because time is just a thing we agree on,
2: yeah, and it all comes back to you had a very specific definition of what your genre was, right, and in the nineteen forties is not like isn't something that the the genre is contingent on
1: no, I mean, yes, the source material, the majority of films happened between nineteen forty and nineteen 1960- sixty Eight, depending on what film nerd you talk to but um, there's neo-noir they're from like you know the 70s forward to future noir to you know throwback noir there's all different and then you get into like the European stuff and they totally don't care about time so um, it became a matter of well if time is variable what else can be variable and then it became a challenge so I started looking at uh, mo- old modules for second edition d d Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the Greyhawk stuff, and the Forgotten Realms stuff. And I noticed that they were all very linear in structure. The start of the adventure is the start of the module, and it moves forward until you get to the end. And at the end, time has passed and the event is completed. Well, then I started asking about, and I started watching films, and I'm like, the crime in this film happened before the movie started. The detective wakes up in scene one and gets told, hey, this thing is missing. Go find it. The actual theft of the item occurred before. So then, all of a sudden, the crime became a variable. Will the crime happen during play? Will it happen after play? Has it already happened? And these different decision points became different ways for different kinds of characters to enter the story. If you want to be the PI who's very, you know, like, I'm solving this case, the crime is likely to have happened before because there'll be clues and evidence. If... You are, you know, the career criminal or the gangster or the politician or even, I don't know, the girl Friday. Then you get the opportunity to commit the crime. Maybe the crime yeah. will happen during play. <laughs> or maybe this whole thing we're doing today, this whole film is set up to the crime. And that's fine, yeah. too, because the, there, you get 36 options in crime. Plus, or, and then you can tweak it as you like. Like, if you're not really cool with, you know, burning down a church, burn down another building. I don't care. I'm not at your table. Like, you can do what you want. Tweak it. Fiddle with it. Um, it's all, everything can be modular if we're all willing to say, yes, I'm happy with these decisions. No, I'm not happy. It just takes, you know, it just takes a, a moment and a little responsibility and you can build a pretty comprehensive agreement between a bunch of people. And, and that's how the game sort of finally came together.
2: So you talked, uh, we talked about uh, doing things like you were, you talked about changing the number of, car- of players at the table. Right. Or, or recommended players. Um, what do you do when you have something like that, which is sort of a sort of good gaming policy type uh, question that, it, and it seems like it has worked well for your system, but what if you have a genre that demands 10 people at the table, but only six really works super well.
1: Then you do what works. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So we'll, let's, let's talk about a genre that requires an ensemble. Okay. Uh, usually that's going to be Westerns, uh, samurai, or like superheroes. Yeah. They, they all work better in the extremes, either huge ensembles or individuals. You know, like the Clint Eastwood gunslinger Batman, um, like good Batman, not Batman versus Superman Batman, <laughs> like good Batman, like, you know, cartoon Kevin Connery Batman. And right. Well, although I got to say Ben Affleck is Batman, I would watch and just skip the Superman parts. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's probably for another podcast. You can have me back and I'll just go on about that. This
0: episode of Stop, Back and Roll is brought to you by Throwing Shade.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like we're planting trees so um you it since it functions best at the extremes then you have to recognize that despite the genre needing an extreme because um the magnificent 7 uh seven samurai those are predicated because there are seven different facets of the the hero ideal they want to portray you know the guilty conflicted one the eager one the nervous one uh, same with war movies, like the the band of brothers. The cute theory. one, right? The cute one, the the, per- the boy one. band theory. Yeah, um, because the group requires represent representation among its internal elements. You know, the pretty one, the bad boy, the rugged one, the sensitive one. Um, you can only reflect that so far, and if yes, if the magic number is six around the table. Then you need to start offering options because you, I don't know. Maybe it comes down to simply there's only six, you know, only room for six people at this table. Oh. the uh, The important thing becomes then: what can these six people portray that speaks to the ten? What am I willing right. to collapse? What am I willing to blend together? What am I willing to exclude? You don't need to include everything in order to be genre air quotes good enough. When you start to get ex- when you start to get rigid more so than exclusionary. When you start to get rigid, that's the point where you have to question, I'm being rigid about this thing, whatever this thing is. Is it serving me? Why am I being rigid? Is it because I need this to be mechanized? Because I need the players to act in a certain way? Or do I need them to like act somewhat in a certain way? I need to give them a range of possibilities that's where like the moves come in in, in PBTA games? Or... Am I being rigid because I think this needs to be an environment or an atmosphere decision? I need my thing to feel this way. Well, if that's the case, then you need to look not at the rules, not the hard, like, pick up 2D6 and roll, but you need to look at the atmosphere provided by the exposition, the, the words in the book. Or even if it's giving the, the, the GM a direction like, you're supposed to be telling a story where people are scared. Be scary and spelling it out it's about deciding what is a mecha- what, what what can be mechanized versus what can be narrated no matter the genre so if we're telling a samurai story and we can only have four people then it looks like some of those you know individual facets are going to get blended together and that's mm-hmm. going to be okay because the player is going to interpret this information and say okay i see i am representing you know the the wise old man and the guy with a troubled past. Well, I can rectify those two and say, the reason I'm wise is because I have a troubled past, or I'm only going to focus on playing up one element over the other, the way that when Brandon played, he saw the pile of bills, and it took him in a particular (laughs) direction. There were plenty of other things on that sheet he could take. Oh, yeah. It's just that he saw that one, and that led him some way. And as as a writer, as a creator of content, I had to be okay with the player picking up the pile of bills... And doing that now, yes, that can blow up hard in my face because, um, well, in early drafts, there was a clue economy because I thought, well, you just have to solve the crime and right. because games have to have more structure. And, <laughs> um, so I wrote this incredibly complicated, you know, players earn clues and X number of clues lead to X number of actions. And it became very formulaic, and then I realized not every player type, not every role, is going to care about clues. Because Some might actively want to get rid of clues. Exactly, which means I have to suddenly mechanize that too. Oh my god, this is now becoming a big complicated narrative mystery, when instead I want it to feel evocative. So the clue economy got ditched pretty damn quick. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah. and, f- and it was interesting because when I went when I when I gave it to Jeremy Morgan to edit, he was still catching little flags of like oh, I wrote. Oh, why is Clue capitalized? Oh, because <laughs> fifty one drafts ago when I wrote the Clue economy, I had capitalized Clue <laughs> because I had gone on a capitalization <laughs> kick, and damn near every proper noun got capitalized. Um,
2: and then we took yeah. it out, and then it was just fine. I think my character in that game that we played spent the entire adventure lying about clues muddying evidence and then alternatingly taking credit for solving or for for like preventing the crime and committing it yes
1: yeah that (laughs) sounds about right (laughs) and that's fine that's what i i the, the so the interesting element in film noir is the plots rarely ever make sense when you think about them um for example one of the greatest film noir uh, The uh, the Big Sleep. Okay. Here's the plot for The Big Sleep. Guy gets hired by a rich old man to keep an eye on his daughter, um, who's kind of a wild, rambunctious kind of girl. There's a chauffeur at the house who's missing, who may or may not be sort of uh, in a relationship or in cahoots with the rambunctious daughter. But, oh, by the way, there's this other daughter... Who the guy who's the the private eye who's been hired is probably in the middle of falling in love with, but she's got it out for the sister. And then we show up at like this little bungalow where the sister, at least in the book, is naked and in the film is not because it's the 50s. And (laughs) um, then they find some film and two guys come in the door with guns. And then we find out that the chauffeur guy is dead and the sister's kind of a bad, good, bad guy. And, oh, by the way, I'm in love with this daughter, and everything's fine, and okay. And that's perfect. Yeah. That's that's amazing. That's exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. It's a fantastic movie, but if I read that plot out, it makes no sense. Double Indemnity is the story of an insurance salesman who is willing to give up his perfect job and his promotion because a lady shows him some thigh. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, kill my husband, and I'll, you know we can throw down naked times and then we'll have a cigarette on a couch because it's the fifties and that's as close as we can get you guys. And in the end, you're going to end up going to the gas chamber and I'm going to run off with this other guy anyway. Cause I'm just disposing of dudes. Like I, I don't care about you. You were a means to an end. And you can see how, how tightly all of those can be
0: essentially entirely driven by the hook system.
1: Yeah. Um, especially the,
0: hooks, the big sleep, I think.
1: Yeah, Every, all the hooks, um, here's a fun game. Go on Amazon and buy the Noir, the Phil Noir Encyclopedia and then take any role and try to match the hook to the movie because <laughs> all the hooks minus uh, the ones that talk about the, the, the there's a meta level to the hooks because I, I couldn't find games that really dealt with this. There were a couple, but I couldn't find many because I wanted to affect uh, player orientation at the table. The player to your left, the player to your right. Okay. That was important because no one else was doing that. Right. Right. Yeah. And it sounded like fun because I know like at my home group, like the married couple sit next to each other (laughs) and they very often play very compatible characters you know, that's the wizard, that's the, you know, that's the healer, that's the warrior, she heals him, he heals her, whatever, Right. that's yeah. the dynamic, and like, they're their own little twosome, they're their own little unit, and the minute I introduce the idea that the player on your right is someone who's going to try to kill you by the end of the movie, <laughs> um, and, you know, and your husband is always sitting on your right, you immediately go like, oh, well, we are, we are deviating from the norm, this is going to be fun for me. Yeah,
0: it's, yeah, game, it's time, game time then. Man.
1: And okay, so how are you going to kill your husband? I don't know. Let's play and find out. Yeah. And no. those relationships became so central, so that when I go back through the films, I'm like, oh, I know that hook. That hook comes from you know, um, don't like, don't get any blood on you, which is a terrible movie. Um, and it, uh huh, it's terrible. And there there's all kinds of great hooks, and there's all kinds of of not so great hooks. And there are some roles that are very steeped in particular hooks. The, the Private Eye comes out of uh, the Dresden Files novels as well as The Big Sleep and most yeah. of the, the the Philip Marlowe kind of stories.
0: Definitely pick up that
1: up. Yeah. Uh, the Career Criminal is Leverage. The Career Criminal is mm. my thank you to John Rogers for making Leverage. <laughs> um, the Politician is Citizen Kane. Okay. Yeah. Straight up. Uh, the good cop is Jim Gordon. The dirty cop uh, that, is is Harvey Bullock. There was
0: zero doubt in my mind that the good cop was Jim Gordon, yeah. and that is precisely why I chose the good cop and why I will continue to choose the good cop <laughs> in every
1: opportunity that I have. Uh, the girl Friday is 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 cat cool. Nice. Um, I tell that story. I I tell that story on the one shot podcast. It's uh it embarrasses her badly, so I will spare her this one time. Um but you should go like ask her about it and watch her get all squishy. Oh
0: definitely. That's that sounds like a delightful thing to experience.
1: The femme fatale is Avery Alder. Okay, um, I can be, see that. All right, so here's how I got that. Avery so uh my first high test at Metatopia, the convention you should all be going to if you have games and want to make games better. Oh my gosh.
0: I promise if you go to Metatopia, I will be excited to see you there.
1: Yes, and I will run Noir World. Um, yeah. Come play our games. So, in the high, my high test for uh, Noir World was Avery Alder, Fred Hicks, Darren Watts, Justin Jacobson, and Adrian Stein. That is a
0: table. That is amazing.
1: Yeah. And and that was a table that had my knees shaking, and I, I threw up in every trash can between the room and the park and, and the parking garage. I was mortified because I, the hook system got it start in Monster Hearts. Yeah, and I saw it, and I'm like, okay, I like like a third of this. I'm gonna take it. <laughs> I'm gonna strip this out, and I, I I read Black Stars Rise and Saga of the Icelanders, and um, Fiasco. And then decided, well, okay, I have enough genealogy here. I'm going to cobble my own together. Right. And I I ran it. And I was terrified that, you know, Avery was going to point out, like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Or that Fred Hicks was going to point out this is wrong. Or that, Dar- you know, somebody was going to get super yeah. critical and table flip and problems. And um, Avery played the, at the time, instead of the Fatale, was the Femme Fatale. Because right. I hadn't yet... Sort of unbuckled the, the the gender from it, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, so so Avery was very kind in taking my character sheet apart, and I still okay. have it. Like it, it's fr- it, it's up on my corkboard over here, um, a line at a time. Avery pointed out this is sexist. Here's why this is a problem. This doesn't do you know this isn't expressive enough. And oh, man. the mantra for early drafts was find a trope, challenge it, and do better.
0: That's so good. I'm trying to approach that section of writing my own game
1: and hitting all sorts of difficulties with that as well. Find the trope, challenge it, and do better. Yeah. And it it came down to really examining, like, well, why is this a trope? Um, Most often for film noir, it's because, oh, sexism. Or, oh, racism. And uh, making it not sexist or racist really sort of solve the problem immediately Um, all of a sudden gender stopped being an issue because you can have lady good cops or lady dirty cops or hom fatales just the fatale as a dude Um, okay there's no reason why you can't so um, all the playbooks all the roles uh, are entirely free of gender assignment you can play them however the hell you want it, yes, the source yeah. material plays them in a certain way, sure. But if, if you want to have um, some of my like one of my favorite playtests early on was the lesbian double date robbing a bank in 1950s Miami. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And it was it was two dudes and two ladies. They were two couples. They decided we're going to play lesbians. Awesome. <laughs> I didn't tell them to. They just decided. And it's interesting that a great number of my games have decided to take very very non-heteronormative directions without me saying... All I say is, you can play any role, any way, however you want, no matter who you are, no matter how you identify, no matter what. Yeah. Period. That's all. That's all I say. I say it at the beginning of every game. I say it in the book. And people are just like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to make a gay detective. That's fantastic. Good for you. Yeah, you are. I mean, I my reinforcing mechanisms that I use around the table went into the book. Directors say, yeah, you are, when a player decides to make a decision. It's very yes and, because that's yeah. the kind of enjoyment I want to bake into the game.
2: Oh, man. There's a whole like larger conversation there about genre theory. Yeah. <laughs> just like, you can strip all these things out and still fundamentally have a a genre piece even without all of these sort of tropes that just shows you that genre is not quite what people think it is genre
1: isn't the shirt you're wearing genre is how you wear the shirt yeah nice and understanding that genre can be as superficial or as complex as you need it to be rather than it, it being a thing that you approach it's a modular toolkit um you can bake in any genre by understanding the emotional and context around it how mm-hmm. is somebody supposed to feel in what ways are they supposed to act do we want to mechanize those actions or do we want to give them enough free rein for those actions do we want to inject randomness into those actions do these actions reinforce other people doing the same sort of things if we're telling us, if we're playing cyberpunk games and we take our hacker out of the van what kind of actions can we leave the hacker to do? Is the hacker going to be able to go toe-to-toe like the gun nut? Or right. do, we have to, do we have to mutate this in some way? What actions can one person take that encourage other people to take similar actions that all reinforce the next person taking actions or the next person making decisions? Everybody colludes together by reinforcing their own choices because the choices are bounded by the conventions I do establish. Noir feels like this. Here's a big giant sandbox. Just stay within these borders, but do whatever you want. Everybody buys in because the boundaries aren't that rigid. They're just existent. Because you need boundaries. Mm -hmm. So as long as you identify those and stay within them and then ask probative questions to keep people nearer the center rather than the edges of our genre sandbox, people will do things and act in such a way as to reinforce it.
0: Right, and the way that you are bringing them into that genre is not by punishing them for not hitting genre it's by essentially having loads and loads and loads of positive reinforcement in the middle of your sheet reminding you how to stay on genre
1: well because it's not i I don't care if you get it wrong i care if you have a good time yeah absolutely so i'm willing to sacrifice a few genre points if it's gonna make you laugh right yeah or if it's going to encourage you to take a risk in a game that you've never taken before, if all of a sudden you're going to be the character, you know, you always play, you know, the lawful, stupid paladin, and then all of a sudden <laughs> you decide, like, today I'm going to be the criminal. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's that's huge. Stretch, grow, be creative. There's there's no There's no downside to that.
2: Yeah. You probably actually even encourage people to play the parts of the genre that they do know more by sort of, being a little bit more flexible about the edges.
1: Yeah. I mean if, if I want if I want heaps of negativity about what things are going wrong, I can look on BuzzFeed and I can read <laughs> listicles and I I can sit on Twitter and talk to certain people and I can sort of steep in this everything's wrong, everything's bad, nobody's happy, this all sucks. I can I can drown in that if I want to. Or I can just make a thing and be happy and perpetuate happy and talk more and, and and carry on and encourage people to do what they love through by showing them, hey, here's a lens by which I do things that I love, so that you can sit at the table and you can play John Q public and play it very square. I'm a man who likes oatmeal. Thank you very much. And <laughs> contrast that with the, you know, the fatale who wants everybody to become communists. And let people take the thing they want, and run with it as far as they can, and then when they need to go farther, you have tools in the character sheet, you have tools in the game, you have mechanics, you have atmosphere that you've created at the table that will allow them to go farther, just like a marathon runner reaches out to the margins and grabs a cup of Gatorade. So I am looking at your hook system. Sure.
0: And I am loving your hook system. Awesome. And I am looking at telenovelas yes. and seeing that the core of what has pushed all of my Pasión de las Pasiones playtests has been the relationships we establish at the beginning. Yes. So there's two parts to this. One, am I the biggest hack in the world if I steal the hook system? Steal it. Excellent. And question two, what do you think of the idea of of making it a time-bounded thing so instead of having just like you know hook that you have uh the two of you had a fling at one point say episode 78 the two of you had a fling at some point
1: you would have to know what episode you're in now
0: yes which generally i've put it somewhere vaguely 200s which doesn't necessarily mean anything
1: it's not gonna work yeah that's true because the distance all right so here's why these things uh, at least for me couldn't be bounded by too much time because okay the more you graduate time and break it down into chunks the harder it gets to keep that idea current so right, for example true. if i say 10 years ago you and this person were a hot item yeah ha- ha- a lot happens in 10 years but right, if i like... and then if i go positive i swing the other way then it's Last week this person, you know, or or the last time you saw this person, they faked their death. You're right in the middle of it still. Right. There's an immediacy to things. So you you, you can either bind things to the present to say, this is still ongoing. I am still having feelings about this event that has either happening around me now or is or just happened like yesterday, or you bind it so broadly in time that the specific quantity of time doesn't matter
0: we used to date
1: has more emotional potential than 170 131 Ooh, 131 episodes ago we dated true okay yeah that makes sense let the player assert the specifics on time okay because they'll compromise they'll reach an agreement you got to trust them to do that yeah that's very true the notion that by saying you know, – behind them by time, absolutely. Have chronology. Play chronology to its strengths. You know, um, elements – and because you're playing into the televisionness of it, right? You're reinforcing right, yeah. it. This is an episodic show. So uh, a statement like, four episodes ago, management threatened to change your actor.
2: <laughs> and,
1: and liberating them from an, not just a narrative level but a, from a meta level to allow yeah. them to think – outside of just the television structure, gives them incentive to take action. Yeah, that's very true. Time is... It can be a crutch. You can easily hobble yourself by saying, we're in episode 200, now we're talking about pilot season. Right, yeah. Or you can use time as a different way to add development and depth. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. In a recent previous episode, XYZ. Yes. Recent covers the past, but it doesn't say, you know, three episodes ago, you've got to remember this because, you know, if, all right, so I'm on my 11th rewatch of the West Wing. Okay. Because that show's writing is amazing. And that show generates more thoughts and and organization for me in terms of like, here's here's how you write characters. Here's how you develop plot. Here's how you get up to speed um here's how you best segue into the best qualities of character um newsroom does it too really anything aaron sorkin does (laughs) because aaron sorkin gets characters um but the, the the point the point i'm going to make is that um when you establish an element in an arc whether that's you know you're screwing around with this character or this guy's out to get you the investment of time in that event how many times do we talk about you screwing around with this guy? Right. versus what does it mean and feel to you? Like we might go two episodes without seeing it. So does it have more impact, you know, like if you have a fight in epi- two, you know, 2 weeks ago, then last week you're dealing with the fallout of the fight cuz oh, she's not around and then she comes back? Yeah. You've you um a great example of this is the first two seasons of How I Met Your Mother. Okay. All of a sudden, you, you build this relationship between uh, Jason Siegel and Allison Hannigan where, oh, God, they're in this forever. And then all of a sudden she fucking leaves. Yeah. <laughs> like it's raining and big giant Jason Siegel, who's normally pretty goofy, is just heartbroken. Yeah. And you feel it and you can feel it with the show on mute and still get it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's about understanding the emotional impact time can play on a decision cuz on a big okay. enough scale your emotion doesn't matter yes
0: so so it's more about how recently such a thing went down or how long
1: or how long i guess it was an involved right. thing because remember the distance between us and a thing gives us perspective okay i i remember getting my first rejection in the back in the on the on the concrete slab next to the outside wall of the gym i understand I, it sucked I ate chocolate chip cookie dough for the first time is a way to cope with that feeling. I remember these things. The time between the present and the event allows us to have perspective. I am less angry about the job that fired me 12 years ago because right. I was screwing off. Whatever.
0: On the other hand, it could also be something where you place some longevity to the event. For example, since episode one, there has been foreshadowing that your characters will get together.
2: Yes.
1: And that could be a much better hook. Now the the structure you st- but you still need there you still need to give it a directive, right? A hook. No matter what the hook is, the hook has three parts. Okay. It okay. gives you um it gives you a start point. Okay. In that it tells you who's involved. It gives you a challenge or a conflict, and then it gives you a directive, a a vector to take it on from here. You and this other person. Okay. There's your there's your opening. Uh. This or, or we'll use a really simple good cop one. This person is the one who got away either in life or crime. Okay. And it gives you a sense of who's involved. It tells you what the problem is and it tells you how to deal with it or it tells you what direction to take it in. Right. It tells you to go after it and right. maybe try to get that back. Try to get it back or resolve it in some way without the direction, without the. Without the here's what I want you here's where I want you to go okay go, all you're all you're doing is creating a fact and with and facts by themselves f- often fall short of creating emotional context for for engagement. Right. Great. You've exactly. told me this thing. Great. We've been there's been foreshadowing that we're going to get together. Uh huh. So what? You never want to create yeah. a hook where the answer is so what. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's boring. Because I won't choose that one. So what? So why is it even on the sheet? Why are
0: we even taking the
1: extra two seconds to read it? Right. Because I could put something in its place that's more evocative. Right. Yeah. That's the plan. So. Okay. When you get a hook, structure the hook to lead the player in the vague, general, broad compass direction of where you want them to go. Okay. Yeah. If they only know to go north, they won't think about going south. Yes, Exactly. But the minute you just say, go, where? To do what? How far? How fast? You've yeah. got to be willing. The hook can be leading. And it's going, by, by its nature of being a, an emotional conflict, it's going to be leading. Yeah. And, it's, it, and it, it should it, be.
0: Just like any yeah. leading question setting up a game. Because that is what this essentially is. Is right. the leading question setting up the
1: game. Right, because on this question you build all your relationships and you build how you're going to interact for the period of play.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: I've got this. I've got how this fits together now, I think. Okay.
0: Hey, let's make a freaking playbook. Great, let's do it. All right, but I know that that also takes a bit of time. No, it doesn't. Are you are you would you be in for that, James, Is you got enough time and everything?
2: Yeah, I think it's fine. So okay. you want to
1: build one of my playbooks or you want to build one of yours?
0: Uh, let's build one of yours because awesome. I want i want to because my my playbook needs some structural reworking and noir okay. world is right on the horizon so i'd love to look at something
1: and see if it's something we can even get to a playable state for some folks great um so one of the stretch goals yeah and it is well we, we here here are your options we can talk about the one-shot stretch goal or we can okay. talk about the retro hero stretch goal
0: james what appeals to you Uh, the retro hero.
1: Okay, retro hero. So retro hero is people like retro Wonder Woman. uh, Okay. The Lone Ranger. Uh, let's see. Retro Wonder Woman, the Lone Ranger, uh, the Green Hornet, the Shadow.
2: The Shadows in there. there?
1: There's one more. I'm thinking. I'm I'm drawing a blank on. But I I have not written the Lone Ranger. Okay. So let's build the Lone Ranger. All right. Sounds great Mm -hmm. to me. All right. So. You can immediately dispense with the Quick Bits names. Okay. Right. Uh, the Lone Ranger has really generic um, male names, and which means we can use really generic male and really generic female. We can also lock this in time by picking names of, like, older generations. Okay. So you yeah. Can, you can get names like Walter and Doris. Yeah. Because... We have to, once we start, like, organizing the basics and getting them out of the way, what are the attributes? Okay. We don't have to start getting modular and thematic with this until we get to moves, actions. Because everything else that we build is really simple and very straightforward. We give them a name. We give them an appearance. We give them equipment. The equipment yes. has to reinforce what the character is. So, the Lone Ranger is, depending on which version you want to go with, a Lone Ranger is a, uh, a, a a Texas Ranger who is yes. presumed dead, and goes on a originally goes on a vengeance mission to avenge his deceased family and loved ones, and ultimately ends up remaining the noble spirit hero. Yeah, exactly. He he is joined by his slightly racist, uh, Indian caricature sidekick, whose <laughs> job it is to um, be racist in such a way as to reinforce the, the the genre.
0: Right. In order to make uh make the cowboy that much better. Right. To be a cowboy,
1: I got to be an Indian. Yes, and, exactly. Um, that is grotesque and awful. Yes. So if we do call attention to that uh, we are going to do it in a way that is not coded hard on paper at best okay. i will address tonto as an action you can take okay because i don't want you sit- i don't want a player at the table to sit there and go you know offensively how white man me bigum player like that is repellent to me I'm, yeah. I'm disgusted by that. I'm sorry that happened on television and film and radio. We can do better. So Tonto as a concept gets backed out of being an Indian. The Tonto yes. archetype is Robin. Okay. Yeah. Do you yeah, know what Robin's absolutely. purpose is? To make Batman look cool. Partially. But Robin is also fodder. Okay. Look at Batman's costume. look at robin's costume
2: yeah he's a distraction
1: yeah he's a distraction the reason why batman's symbol depending on what area you're reading is just the yellow chest part it's because he wants to draw fire to it if you're going to shoot him you're going to shoot him in the colorful bit
0: where he has armor
1: yeah because you'll shoot him in the middle you're not going to shoot his head which is shrouded in black or navy depending on our artist so we're gonna shoot him in the in the targety spot. The boob window, if you will. Robin <laughs> is wearing friggin' primary colors.
0: Yeah. He head is to toe. not
1: only the emotional contrast, the Oh golly, shucks, Batman, what are we gonna do? He's the hopeful, plucky one who's supposed to lift brooding Batman out of the emotional hole. He's also the physical thing who will distract the bad guy with the gun. So Tonto. We make into a move. Right. And so Tonto becomes a service piece rather than a, a major player. That's why there's no Tonto playbook. Yes. Yeah. Because that's gross. Yes. So instead, we know that we later on will have a move with Tonto in it. Okay. So now all we do is just give him equipment. So what equipment do we think of when we think about Lone Ranger? He has a hat. He has a mask. Absolutely. He has a horse. He has some silver bullets. He has a gun. He has some spurs. He mm-hmm. uh, and he wears these things regardless of the era in which this story is taking place. Um, yeah, there are radio serials for the Lone Ranger where he shows up in like 1930s Manhattan. Yes, just just, <laughs> just rocking his white horse, like yes, police commissioner. Oh, Lone Ranger, you're here. We we can go with that. So we can give the Lone Ranger sort of the the base template of equipment we can give him money for a meal we can give him he doesn't need a trench coat because he's got his hat and mask but we can give him like an outfit where he'll still wear the hat and mask but now he's going to wear a tux right because i think that's part of the conceit and i think you could even have the hat
0: and or the mask as things that are automatic items that he has
1: they're the they're the thing at the top you know you, you you get the you pick three belongings in addition to hat and mask you will always have exactly great so now we give him some equipment a pile of stuff he's gonna get a gun so we're gonna make sure he's got at least one other weapon in case he wants to choose a knife um yeah we'll give him you know we've got to give him a at least for noir world we've got to give him a location he's got to have a place to stay um because there's always that option in every role because uh you should have a place to live you should feel invested in the city so let's give you a place um which might be a hideout given that he's supposed to be dead Right. It could be the it could be, you know, what is generally considered to be the Lone Ranger cave. Exactly. Which is pretty much a barn where the horse hangs out that no one seems to question. Um
0: Well, why would there.
1: And it, it, right exactly. It's just like, oh, it's a horse, it's a barn, just whatever. Or it's behind the giant faux cardboard boulder. Um Oh, it's fine. No one notices. But yeah. he needs a location, so he gets his location. So now we get into actions. Now we get into the things where we get to see what the Lone Ranger represents. So when we think about the Lone Ranger, what do we think about? We think about some of the same ideals we see in Superman. Like, right. like good Superman, like cartoon Superman. Oh, yeah. Uh, not like whiny, emo, mulledy, electrical power Superman. I mean like good Superman. Like Christopher, no. like, like motherfucking Christopher Reeve. Like yeah. Superman, that inspires the best. Exactly. Yes. You know what Captain America does with like half as much effort. Yeah, Superman throwing shade. <laughs> so we this know the first, be. we know the first move, uh, the first action they can take has to be something that uh, inspires or rallies others. Absolutely. But we run into our first problem because the good cop has a move that inspires others. So now we now we sit at 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 a decision point: Do I just reskin that move, or do I create something new? Right. If you're me, your answer is: Oh, you create something new.
0: But there are people (laughs) in the world
1: who will look at it and go, "Well, I can just you know polish the serial numbers off, and it'll be fine." Yeah. I want to make something new. So, in order to build a move, um, we have to think of the condition under which the move will occur. And the condition has to be specific enough as to have a purpose, but not so specific that it's only going to come up if we start doing specific. Only if we only go in one direction, right? Like, yeah, yeah. When um, you can't have a move that says something like when you when you shoot somebody, but you've rolled a six. Like it, it can't be so hyper focused. So yeah. it, it has to kind of back up and back away from the rigidity. So it'll be a move something to the effect of let's see. When you're able to stand up for justice, comma, roll plus, and it'll probably be Moxie or Risk. Um I could see also keying
0: it off of being the first in there. Okay, well,
1: the like, like we, have, we have four we have four of these. And true, we can get true. multiple ones. The yeah. problem is that when you get four different actions and too many of them float around the same, orbit the same idea, you limit them the have... in terms of what they can do. Yeah. So for now, we're going to give, we'll give him an, an inspirational move. And we have to decide whether or not, what this move is going to do. Does this move give a plus one to others? Is this a, is this a buff? Right. Is this a buff specifically and only to others, making him therefore the paladin of wow. Or yeah. is, is this a buff to himself and others? Uh, looking at the source material, because when in doubt, go back to the source to help reinforce the ideas you want to get across. Uh, him standing up for justice doesn't do anything for him. He's already the lone ranger. Exactly. He's not going to get more lone, and he's not going to get more ranger. <laughs> so therefore, it has to be Too a lone, too ranger. Well, that's when he puts racing stripes on silver, and he learns to drift. Exactly. Yeah. The loan of the ranger. The loan of the ranger. Oh, this is gonna be really good. I can do this for a while. So, um, he <laughs> puts spinners and neon yeah. on the undercarriage of the horse, so the saddle's yeah. just all pimped out. And then we get a girl and- in like a scant, like a scanty, buxom woman in like a corset, and that's about it to like drop the handkerchief that signifies the start of every horse race. <laughs> and, and then, and this
0: horse is from Tokyo, so it can drift along yes. the sides of the track. And-,
1: and there's always like a close-up shot of two two glasses <laughs> clinking. Because be that's great. how we know we're living the life, and then somebody's like squeezing yeah. the reins on the horse. I don't know if you squeeze reins on horses, but they're like squeezing the shit out of leather straps. <laughs> so now that we've Vin Diesel'd some horses, um, we can we can wrap this move by saying when you uh, in, w- when you stand up for justice, comma yeah. roll plus moxie, period, and then we establish our conditions by which this happens on a ten plus. Uh, and now we have the option of either hard coding and saying something does happen, period. Yeah. Or um, we can do something conditional and say, uh, when you do this, then there's a possibility this next thing triggers and it becomes part of a domino sequence. Okay. And for right now, we're only looking at the positive. And you have got to think about these things in compartmentalized ways. So on a 10 plus, someone is inspired to do something they didn't think they could do. Yes. I'm writing this down because that's actually really good, John. <laughs> All right, oh, so that's our ten plus. So we know that if we succeed, we're going to succeed and lead someone to take an action. Right. So now we move to the seven and nine. The seven and nine is the is the conditional, and we get to figure out just how conditional this is. We. And, I can and, see. Yes. I could see this being
0: something of not only pushing someone to inspiration, but actually. I, this I think almost ties in with the idea I was saying before that maybe on a seven to nine, they get the inspiration, but you've got to show them first. Okay. Take take almost the uh, the dungeon world's parlay
1: sort of setup. Okay. All right. So we we it we uh, on a seven to nine, we say something like, you will inspire. We will take the condition for the ten. You will inspire yeah. someone to do uh, what they didn't think they could do, and then we tack on a set of extra conditionals. But right. first, you have to either um, do something you didn't think you could do, or, and this is probably where I will bring back a bring a hook back in. Yeah. Um, and and say something like, uh, "You either have to do something you didn't think you could do." Or you have to convince, and you use a strong verb like convince because it leads to action. Uh, right. Convince a, a, a role you have a hook with to do something they don't want to do. And you, uh. shift, and you shift the language in the condition because that's how you pivot to bringing in a different person. Right. So there's your seven to nine. It, it, it's open enough to lead us positively, but it also has the possibility to tangle us up further. So it meets my Mm -hmm. conditions for seven to nine. And now we get six minus. And because there are no moves made against you, because there's no jam, like, I'm going to make a hard move. Right. Yeah. Um, We get to dictate just how bad it gets when it goes poorly. Okay. Now we can constrain this in several different ways. We can look at this and say, well, it blows up in your face, but how does the idea of standing up for justice blow up in your face? Well, the obvious answer is you immediately get into a fight for your trouble. Right. Someone sees you and calls you a nerd and, you know, splashes a drink in your face. Physical altercation. Yeah. But what if they don't want to go in that direction? I don't always want there to be a fight, so I've got to create a separate conditional. Um, Either, on a six minus, either someone picks a fight because they disagree with you or what you've done. Right. Or, oh, this could be a great place to show...
0: To show that you aren't as just as you would claim to be.
1: Yes, exactly. So then we have to introduce the idea of... um, We'll read out the whole thing. On a six minus, in order to have anything positive come out of this, you have to demonstrate Mm. how you're just not as brave as everyone thinks. (laughs) Oh, that's great.
2: Yes. That feels like... The time where you try to do something brave and just and honorable and then someone gets captured. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Perfect. So now we come up with a name for this. And um, as you go through the book, all the names are jokes because okay, that's a chance for me to make fun of something or reference pop culture or, or make light of something. One of the private eye moves is called Fuego. Um, nice. One of the career <laughs> criminal moves is Age of the What Now? Uh, all four gambler moves are know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. It's so good. So we need to name this move, and it's, it's about justice. So we can call this For Great Justice. As well we should. So that is how we build a move. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you that we will also build another move, Then I'll build moves three and four later. But move one, for great justice, outlines the possibility of either being the hero that everyone thinks or revealing that you're not. It is a right. personal crisis. Yes. Hooray! So let's address <laughs> the awful part of Lone Ranger. Let's talk Tonto. Okay. Our second move is going to be called Tonto. Or okay. kimosabi Yeah. Right, yeah. Now... We can, we can do this in a couple different ways. We can create uh, an NPC and call him Tonto. Right, Yeah. Much like much like how the celebrity or socialite gets a butler or, or a no, the musician gets a number one fan. Um, we can do that. The problem is that that might perpetuate the notion of racist, the same thing. awful Tonto. I don't want to yeah. do that. So Tonto can't be an NPC we create. So instead, I want Kimosabi to be the opportunity to make someone else at the table into a, into their Tonto.
2: Yeah. Okay. So yeah.
1: You get the option of either adding another hook or you swap out a hook you have with what we will refer to casually as the Kemosabi hook. Right now the relationship between Tonto and the Lone Ranger in the source material. Uh, if you watch the terrible movie with Johnny Depp, um, Tonto is uh, Jack Sparrow wearing a dead bird um, and and basically doing the same <laughs> shtick he always does. Um, yeah. And he, he rescues uh, the very tasteless, white bread, boring Lone Ranger from death. Uh, in, the, in the original story, Tonto is the Indian who nurses the wounded, presumed dead Ranger back to health at the yes. cost of his tribe. Yes. Don't help the white man else we will exclude you. Hey, I got to help this guy. He's a guy. Well, then you're yeah. Out Tonto. Yeah. So we create this move called Kimosabi, where we will offer the opportunity to take one additional hook with a player with another role at the table okay. or swap an existing hook you have for this hook Kimosabi, which will be this person uh either no, it's got to be Tonto. So we have to frame it as Tonto. So it's got to be, you saved this person's life, but are convinced they're just going to end up in hot water without you. So you've got to stick close by their side at every opportunity. Nice. That way, And so that they're always around. Yes. Even when inconvenient. Is there,
0: should there be a mechanical side of that as well? Some kind of... Uh, almost like the the faceless being able to arrive
1: at any time they do something. Think about what that turns in larger group play. The minute you start to right. mechanize something big and dynamic. Oh, he can always show up. Tonto's always there. You are, well, great, just give Tonto a gun. Tonto always shows up. Tonto <laughs> can overtake a scene. Tonto becomes dominant True. rather than subordinate. Right, yeah. And as awful as it might be to say, oh, well, Tonto is subordinate to the Lone Ranger, that's the function he plays. He's the sidekick. Yeah. So we we don't mechanize the sidekickness so much as we mechanize the opportunity to fill that role for a player. Right. And we reinforce around the table rather than create something external. Right. Unless you're going
0: to reinforce in a very speci- unless you're going to create a mechanic that works in a very specific sort of way. Right. So, when uh, when you are injured, this person can arrive strictly to pull you out of the fire.
1: Yes. This person will save you one anytime you suffer greater than 3 injury, this person will arrive to save you. Yeah. At great personal risk to himself. Right. Now, um, interesting non-noir world element. Uh, an easier way to approach Tonto is in cyberpunk. Okay. You make Tonto the drone. Yes. Mm. Okay. You make Tonto a tool. Right. And then you, you get to be, you know, like the really tacky 90s lone net ranger. Oh, I feel <laughs> unclean just saying that. But you make Tonto lone the net the, you make Tonto so the OS or the toolbox um to help sort of quietly reinforce that. What do you mean we, human? Oh god. <laughs> so you so so yes, that's the that's the move building process I went through for all the roles. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now S- we get solid. to the hooks. Yes. The hook brings you back. The hook brings you back. <laughs> I ain't telling you no lies. <laughs> that's true. Now, here's how we build hooks. Hooks offer an opportunity to follow genre challenge okay. genre, or encourage new directions. Okay. So part of our hooks have to reflect something like, you will jump in front of the silver bullet for this person. And right. we get to use the actual language on the paper to help sort of reinforce and nudge the joke of it. Yes, exactly. Um, so you are willing to, to go to great lengths to protect this person from danger, even at great personal risk. Okay. Um, this person... Although this person is thought by... Uh, so, we'll do a complicated hook. So, a three-person hook. One of the tangles at the very bottom of the sheet. Yes. This person is convinced this other person is only dealing with you because they know they can always take advantage of you. Okay, yeah. Uh, it needs to be better worded because there's too many they's and big pronouns. So, it would right. be... Uh, this person keeps trying to convince you that this other person is only out to ruin you. Okay, yeah. That way you're setting up this this sort of triad dynamic between somebody trying to do the right, you know, the angel on the shoulder versus the devil on the shoulder. Exactly. And stretching it out that way. If the hooks are going to reinforce how the Lone Ranger should feel, rather than what they do, because hooks have to be about feelings then all positive hooks have to steer the character towards making difficult choices. Okay. You, you you are not sure this person is willing to save themselves, so you will always make an effort to save them for themselves. Right, right. This per, You believe this person sucks at making decisions, so you will always make it for them. Yeah. It's open-ended to give you enough rope to hang yourself, but also interesting enough to sort of establish a power dynamic that we can challenge in play. So something that, something like you have seen
0: below uh something like uh this person has seen below your mask is not sufficient. Right. Because it doesn't necessarily push a thing forward, but something more like this person knew you before you put on the mask and suspects they suspects they identify you might be.
1: Correct. Because you're you're going one step but, but, further. You're not just giving me a fact. Now you're building a fact on context. This person right. has seen beneath the mask and is sworn to keep your secrets. Versus right. this – uh, you are certain this person has seen beneath the mask. They're not um, – and then you put in parentheses, you know, parenthetical like they may have yeah. or may not have. Um, and you act accordingly. Okay. Yeah, and and you you either spin it back to you to act like oh my god I've got to cover my face or you leave it to them to sort of like do I act guilty do I act nervous do I not hide from yeah. it do I you know before I tell Katie Holmes that I'm Batman do I just jump off the side of the building like what do I do how do I manage this do I you know what do I say How do I... And, and keeping that tension present in a hook allows the player to take it in whatever direction they want and as a creative you don't have to write out the end to that tension you just need to present the tension and they'll run with it yeah exactly so people know what
0: to do when they've seen underneath someone's
1: mask right they could do (laughs) a million things do any of them go yeah that's that's how you build lone ranger hooks okay awesome so yes that's the building process for how you build a role
0: that is very cool john thank you so much for bringing us through that you are super welcome And also,
1: thank you so much for coming in and joining and recording with us today. It is my great pleasure to sit here and talk for, oh my god, is that almost two hours? That's fantastic.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we're coming in on two hours. It's going to be a very special episode. (laughs) Exactly what I wanted to happen happened, which is that you two are both writing uh, genre-heavy games, and I wanted you to talk shop. (laughs) Well then, don't edit any
1: of this and just put it out raw
0: john it is always such an enormous pleasure to speak with you ever since we met you back at metatopia 2015 we have talked about how you are such a cool guy and just amazing and we're so excited for noir world it is going to be hitting our table just as soon as we possibly can
2: yeah and and it's great because we frequently talk about stuff from the point of view of people who are starting projects and here you are coming around the the back end of the project and you can look back on your process and talk about that.
1: Yeah. I I am Which super thankful. And you guys, if you, if you have more questions, as I'm sure one of you will at some point, um, <laughs> just find me on Twitter and yep. I will happily ramble through a series of tweets about all the things we can do.
2: And so what is your Twitter account? So people can find you.
1: Oh, that's right, James. Um, here is my Twitter account. Uh, awesome. A W E S O M E underscore you need the underscore John, um, I actually have an update as to awesome John no oh. underscore he is a DJ okay he, he is a dude bro he has okay. blocked me and he absolutely <laughs> hates being confused for me you can find Noir World on Twitter uh, at Noir World RPG N-O-I-R-W-O R-L-D-R-P-G um, you can find it on Facebook uh, facebook.com/noirworld. Um, yeah, other than that, I'm always available and around in some way, shape or form. And yeah. I will be tweeting about that Kickstarter. So
0: guaranteed <laughs> you will find it. If you contact either of us, we will send you the information for the Kickstarter.
1: Oh, uh, that'd yeah. be great. thank you guys.
0: Of course, yeah. I'm so excited for this game. I want everyone I want everyone that I know to have it so that I can play it easily with everyone I know.
2: Yeah. And you can find us both on Twitter uh, at Stop Hack and Roll, or individually, I'm at End the Meltdowns.
0: And I'm at Dr. Captain uh, We've got a website at StopHackAndRoll.com.
2: You can email us at James or Brandon at com.
0: But, you know, there's quicker
2: ways to get in touch with us than email. <laughs> yeah. I'm bad with the email.
0: Uh, we also have now a Discord server, which has been full of game development all the time it's been really cool great community there uh, and that is at tinyurl.com slash shr discord
2: uh we make this podcast with the support of patreon backers like troy pitchelman robert cossack rob abrazado Stephen mitchell rob harvey evan brower riverhouse games declan chadbourne blake ryan Oh, this is awkward. Uh my other friend Ryan, who I put in the list next to Blake Ryan, and Nick Clark.
0: And we really just cannot say enough how much we appreciate the backing of those Patreons. Uh if you would like to support the show, uh hop on to patreon.com slash stop hack and roll, or go give us a rating review on uh iTunes. You know what the iTunes thing is. Or just tell a friend about
2: the show. <laughs> yeah. Um we are uh, a year ago this would have been a total nightmare because we wouldn't have been able to upload this super long episode yeah now it's not a big deal because we have the space
0: which is very exciting thank you all so much
1: as you're out there in the mean streets in the darkness in the shadows where the concrete and the alleys and the secrets all meet don't forget to stop hack and roll By the way, I can continue recording for 1,275 hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> didn't she never ask me to modify anything?